itself, um, but um, maybe another reason for me being here is Christoph was perhaps distracted and remarkably worried this week in the lead-up to the uh, Germany-France game, um, so he didn't have time to prep, so that's why I stepped in, um, or maybe it was an excuse for me to wear a shirt for a change, but anyway, we're starting a new series this morning. Uh, we're starting a series uh, that's going to be going through July and August on the topic of prayer. It's a good time for people like Kirkpatrick to be thinking about prayer. We've just finished part one of Pray 100, 100 Days of Prayer, um, where we've been marking the church's centenary. Many gathered here for a period of 50 days, early in the morning, late at night, and at times in between as well. Praying as well as we knew how, and experiencing some great encouragements too. Prayers were said for someone who urgently needed a visa for a mission trip, who that very afternoon was finally granted that visa. Prayers too for a man who we wanted to come uh, to faith in Jesus and who the very next day did just that. But generally, I think you'll agree that with our experience of praying, many of us have been reminded how much we struggle with prayer. We're like the disciples who, who came to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us to pray. I want you to imagine for a moment that we are the disciples of Jesus. I hope that's not too difficult for you to imagine because that's exactly what we are. I want you to imagine coming to Jesus like the first disciples, aware of our struggles with prayer and saying, Lord, teach us to pray. What do you think he might say? He might say, well, when my first disciples came, Uh, and they asked me to teach them to pray, I taught them a prayer. You may want to start there. Now, we we did that as a congregation. We studied the Lord's Prayer a couple of summers ago in a series called 57 Words That Changed the World. But if we persisted with our question, and if we pressed Jesus further for guidance, I wonder what he might say. It seems likely to me that he would point us to the prayers of God's word. Jesus often quoted the Psalms, the prayers his forefathers had offered up to God throughout history. He might point us to the prayers of Moses, to the prayers of David, of Jeremiah, or others. In this series that we're starting today, we're going to pay particular attention to the prayers of one of Paul's earliest followers, Saul of Tarsus, or the Apostle Paul. We hope that by praying with Paul, we'll start to align some of our prayers with his prayer habits. We'll learn what to pray for and how to go about it. We'll learn new priorities and we'll expand our vision of prayer to be more biblical. We're going to be opening ourselves to God's word so that God's spirit can speak to us through it and so that God himself can teach us to pray. One more thing as we start. Although it will be of most benefit to be here throughout the series, we hope that each sermon will stand alone. But if you do find yourself missing parts of the series, you can catch up online. Or if you want, and if you're a keen readers, um, I'd recommend getting a copy of Don Carson's book, A Call to Spiritual Reformation, which has inspired this series. So as we begin focusing on prayer from today's reading, uh, in Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, we need to start in verse 11, where Paul actually begins his prayer. Verse 11 starts, and Paul writes, With this in mind, 
we constantly pray for you. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you. With, with what in mind? What is it that Paul sees as vital as he prays to his friends in Thessalonica? What Paul writes before this verse must clearly be what he's referring to. Minus his greeting in verse 1 and 2, verses 3 to 10 must provide us with the framework that Paul uses as he prays. We are therefore going to concentrate on these verses as we try to grasp what Paul prays for and why he prays it, noticing two key components of his framework. The first being his thankfulness for God's grace evident in the lives of his people. And the second is Paul's confidence in God's vindication of his people, God's just nature to count us worthy to enter his kingdom. Let's focus on the first of these for a while. Thankfulness for God's grace, for God's work evident in the lives of his people. Let's look again at verses 3 to 4 together. Paul writes to the Thessalonians, We ought always to thank God for you, brothers, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more. The love every one of you has for each other is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. It's evident that Paul sees thankfulness as an essential part of his thinking when he prays. He states how he ought always to thank God for the Thessalonians. If Paul feels it's such a compulsion, such an obligation to give thanks for them, we should consider then what it is that we give thanks for. We say grace at mealtimes, thanking God for our food. We thank God for traveling mercies after a trip. We thank God perhaps when a job interview goes well. Or we thank God when we recover from a bite of illness. Please note that yes, we ought to thank God for these and many other things. But on reflection, our thanksgiving is very closely tied to our material well-being and our comfort. What we offer up our thanks to God with uh, is clearly what we're going to be valuing most in our lives. If a large part of our thanksgiving is for material prosperity, then it must be because we value material prosperity proportionately. So as we compare our thanksgiving with that in Paul's, we're likely to see some pronounced differences. When Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians, he rejoiced in the fact that they had persevered with the gospel despite opposition and he urged them to continue to do so. Paul also encouraged them to help each other by continuing to love and serve one another. By the time Paul wrote his second letter to the Thessalonians, a number of months later, they had done just that. In verses 3 to 4, Paul notes that each individual had grown in maturity, as seen in their, their growing faith, their increasing love, and their perseverance through trials. So their growing faith. In verse 3, Paul gives thanks for the faith that was growing more and more. Since he's talking about growth, Paul must not be referring to their initial conversion, but to their actual increased reliance on God, their deepening relationship with him, and their desire 
for spiritual growth. And it's for this that Paul gives thanks. Secondly, their increasing love. In John 13, Jesus tells his disciples that as he loved them, so they must love one another. And that their love uh, would point others and, and distinguish them as set apart. People would know that they were Jesus' disciples. As Paul hears reports from Silas and Timothy about the Thessalonians, he's struck by their growing love. Such love must be the work of God. And so it is to God that Paul gives and directs his thanks. Thirdly, their perseverance through trials. Their steady endurance was so outstanding to Paul that he boasts about it among the churches. Now, Paul wasn't boasting about his own teaching and his own gifts in, in guiding and directing the Thessalonians, but rather he was highlighting how powerfully God's grace was operating in their lives, that they were able to withstand persecution and trials. A great testimony to God's grace, a great example, and a great encouragement for us today. Now, if you were here last Sunday, Christoph did mention it was a very busy service, but at last, Sunday's, last Sunday morning service, gave us a great foundation and gives us a great foundation to start integrating some of Paul's thinking into our prayers. We collectively prayed for parents of four children baptized, praying that we could support them as their church family, as they seek to reflect Christ in their roles as parents. We heard of the work of Ifes Ireland from Monty, who drew a clearer picture of their work, outlining specific prayers for them as they seek to inspire and equip students to become passionate, lifelong followers of Christ. We were also given a list of and spent time praying for those from this church serving in short-term mission this summer, praying that God would equip them, guide and direct them as they carry his name to set out in the work that they have. So what is it that Paul keeps in mind here as he prays? What is it that we can learn from his example? Well, we can learn to be more intentional about recognizing and giving thanks for the signs of grace in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. In the lives of new parents, of those working in Ifes Ireland, of the Cronin family, of Stephen and Laura, of those serving Christ this summer in mission. We can learn to encourage each other more and more, giving thanks for evidence of growing faith, increasing love, and perseverance through trials. And then to praying that our lives would reflect the light of Christ and that we could reflect him more and give him glory through all things. Now let's look at the second part of Paul's framework as he prays. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul points out this second feature, and it's the confidence in God's vindication of his people. Basically, God, God making all things right in the end. In verses 5 to 10, Paul attempts to focus the attention of the Thessalonians to what the onset of a new heaven and a new earth would mean for them, and equally for those who oppose them. That, as Paul writes in these verses, for believers there will be relief from trials, and for those who oppose and trouble them, punishment and retribution await. Opposition, trials, and suffering were causing some of the Thessalonian Christians to doubt Paul's gospel, thinking 
God must be unjust, he must be powerless, or perhaps both. Or maybe that God just wasn't bothered about them. And perhaps sometimes we can feel this way. Paul, however, he argues that God is just, and he is powerful, and he is supremely concerned for the Thessalonians. And more than that, he's active in fulfilling his purposes in them. Remember, Paul gives thanks for them and boasts about them as an example to others. Not to put them on a pedestal, but to draw attention to God, who is at work in, who is at work in them and through them. Their present circumstances, rather than causing them to doubt the gospel, should rather increase their confidence in it. The idea Paul shares in verse 5 is not that their sufferings will somehow make them worthy of the kingdom of God, but rather that their perseverance in the face of suffering was evidence of the fact that God had declared them worthy of entering his kingdom. Injustice, sufferings, and trials are given new perspectives when viewed in the light of Christ's return. When those who persecute Christ's people will themselves face the treatment they give others. In verse 7, Paul highlights that God will give relief to those who are troubled and that those who do not know or obey him will be punished with an everlasting destruction and shut out of the presence of the Lord. We need to be reminded of this. We are losing our anticipation of the Lord's return. The anticipation that Paul shows us here is key for him to keep in mind as he comes to pray. I don't know if any of you have seen it, but in the movie The Best Exotic Marigold Hotel, guests are confused and angered at the hotel. It's remarkably muddled, and, and it's really only half finished. Anytime the guests raise it with the hotel owner, he'd reply, everything will be all right in the end. If it's not all right, then it's not yet the end. Everything will be all right in the end. A reminder of what we believe, that God will vindicate his people and his purposes in the end. He will make all things right when Christ returns. Some find the idea of retribution quite tricky to grasp and in conflict with the love that Christ calls us to show to our neighbors. It's been tricky as I've been trying to understand what Paul's thoughts are on vindication and specifically on this topic of retribution. This is where we need to be reminded of the fact that the gospel message is based on the fundamental belief of retribution. Where evil occurs, it must be paid back, otherwise God himself is violated. As we focus on the cross, we see that God is not purely full of wrath, nor is he simply a lover who lavishly forgives, but the sovereign who's both perfect in holiness and perfect in love. His holiness demands retribution. His love sent his son to absorb that retribution on our behalf. Forgiveness is only possible because where there has been real offense, a real sacrifice has been made to offset that offense. If we refuse to acknowledge that we deserve retribution, 
if we refuse to accept the forgiveness available to us because of Christ's sacrifice, then we ourselves must face that retribution. Paul is highlighting that while persevering through our trials and our sufferings, we should remember the trials and sufferings of Christ. We should remember our struggles are not in vain. And we should be encouraged to step out in faith in the knowledge that God will make all things right in the end. How great would it be that when we pray, while facing opposition and suffering, rather than than purely praying for an end to our own or to others' sufferings, we shifted our focus to praying that in and through our perseverance, with the anticipation of the Lord's return in mind, we're praying that our faith would grow, that our love for one another would increase, and that ultimately we would reflect God's love, glory, and grace in all that we do. So as we've been looking at this chapter, as we've been reflecting on what it was that Paul had in mind before he prayed, what is it that we've learned? Well, we've learned that Paul focused on and gave thanks for signs of grace among the people he was praying for. He also had a simple confidence in God's perfect vindication whenever Jesus does return. What should we be doing? We should be thanking God for his work in each other's lives. And we should know we can trust him to make all things right in the end. Let's pray together. Lord, as we've been looking at Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians, Lord, we pray, we pray that our knowledge of your grace in our lives would increase. Lord, we collectively want to be able to encourage each other, seeing signs of, of growing faith, of, of deepening love, and of increasing perseverance in trials. Lord, that with the light of eternity in mind, that through the trials and through the sufferings that we face, that we would make much of you. And Lord, that we would be more effective in showing and reflecting your love, your glory, and your grace in all that we do. Amen.